Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Shirley Aaron, who is author of Troubling the Ashes. We will discuss racism today. Shirley is a retired Alabama teacher and Georgia media specialist with 42 years of experience in education. She didn't attend college until after her son and daughter were born, achieving a degree in education in order to teach important values through literature. Shirley was widowed in 2007 when her husband Charles O. Aaron passed away from cancer. She is also the author of Drops of Light, A Book of Poetry, and Sweet Tea with Lemon, due to be published in 2017. Shirley, welcome. Welcome. I appreciate you inviting me. This topic is something that seems to be coming at us from every direction lately between the issues that we're seeing in cities across the country, relations between the different groups, issues with police and different communities, and if we expand beyond to the immigrant issues that we're seeing in Europe and terrorists, it seems to all of a sudden have grown larger than life. Let's start, if you would, by defining when we say racism, what are we talking about, Shirley? Well, in my opinion, racism is the definition of feeling superior to someone else, to another individual, or to another race, or to another country, maybe. Um, it's, it leads to discrimination. And discrimination, as uh, you know, can take place in any environment, um, in the workplace, in schools, in politics. It can occur anywhere. So when you see discrimination, there is a likelihood that you are witnessing a form of racism. And that is troubling. To me, it's troubling. And I feel that it should be troubling to anyone, whether you are a teacher, an administrator, a politician, a parent, or if you are a businessman. And in my novel, Troubling the Ashes, which is based on the 1962 desegregation lawsuit, Lee v. Macon County Board of Education, that was filed by civil rights attorney Fred Gray. It, he deals with this issue of desegregation, which was discrimination, which came out of racism in the South. And he initially asked Judge Johnson to desegregate an all-white school in Macon County known as Tuskegee High School. And he also asked that Judge Johnson desegregate every public institution of learning in the state of Alabama from K through college. And Judge Johnson told him, I'll give you Macon County, but I won't give you all of Alabama because things were so bad at that time in Alabama. And Two weeks after the plaintiffs desegregated Tuskegee High School, Wallace, Governor Wallace, closed the school, which he did not have a legal right to do in the state of Alabama. So they sent six of the plaintiffs to Shore High School and six to Notasauga High School. The six plaintiffs arrived in Notasauga in February of 1964. Two months later, Someone unknown to this very day, there's a lot of speculation about who did it, but there's never been any evidence and no one's ever been charged with the crime. But two months after those six students desegregated Notasauga High School and white flight had occurred, and they were the only six students left in the high school, some townspeople burned the school to the ground. And I went there with my husband, who was a football coach, and the narrator of the novel, Marley Jane Steele, is based on me. 
And I would say probably 45% of the novel is based on historical facts, on historical figures. And I don't change the names of any historical or well-known people. But other people, some of them, I have given them fictitious names. So we went there in 67. The school had been burned in 64. It was built back uh, by 65. And in 67, Judge Johnson did what Fred Gray, a well-known civil rights attorney, African-American, had asked him to do in 1963. He added 90-something public schools, K through college, as defendants to Lee versus Macon. And he gave the state of Alabama until 1972 to meet all the guidelines of Lee versus Macon. So I was at Notasaga during the time that we were working to implement Judge Johnson's guidelines and to fully desegregate Notasaga, which meant that we were going to bring in some African-Americans who had been going to Tuskegee. And we were afraid that white flight would occur again at the school as it did in 1964. But it didn't. We didn't lose any white students. We gained more African-American students. The whites who had sent their children to a private school, they didn't return. We didn't expect them to return. But over time, the townspeople, this town that was so divided, the churches were divided. The Methodist church that I attended, and I've been Methodist all my life, they were horrible. So you had divided churches, you had divided families, because some families, part of them believed in desegregation, and the other part believed in separate, you know, of keeping the schools closed to blacks. So it divided families. You had the town that was divided. You had the school that was split apart. And over time, they came, the townspeople came to respect one another, to say, it's okay if you support this candidate. It's okay if you send your kid to that school. It's okay. We can still have dinner together. We can still go to church together. We can still go to a football game together. We can still talk about our children and share pictures of our children. So there was a change in that town, which leads me to believe that there is hope and optimism, even as racism is on the rise today. The only thing that will stop racism is the same thing that curtailed it in Notasaga. And racism didn't die in Notasaga. And a lot of people learn just to change their rhetoric, to change their tone. A lot of people learn to play make-believe. But if you are a racist and you discriminate, sooner or later, you're going to give yourself away. If other people listen to you carefully, sooner or later, it will seep out like sweat coming out of your pores because a racist person cannot hide it forever. So racism didn't disappear, but people learned that we are in this together. We cannot destroy ourselves based on a feeling of bigotry. And that's true in any culture. If it's 
black culture, white culture, Hispanic, we have got to recognize first that we are people. We are human beings. We are a civilized country, that we are more important than the Democrat or the Republican or the Independent, independent Party. We are better than any party. We need to respect one another, and we need to acknowledge that minorities have been on the other side of justice for centuries. And we need to work to change that. That means if anyone, especially anyone in a position of power, whether it is an employer, whether it is a politician, whether it is a teacher or a church minister, we cannot stand by quietly when that person, like George Wallace, used rhetoric to express the idea of white supremacy or misguided Christian values or hateful immigration. I talk about the KKK in Troubling the Ashes. And on the cover of my book are two little girls, an African-American and a little white girl. And the little white girl in the book is the daughter of the Methodist minister. And the little African-American girl is the daughter of two important characters in the book, Mose and Willie Mae Hurston. And Mose and Willie Mae Hurston's sweet mother was killed by the KKK as she and her husband were returning home from the Selma to Montgomery march. Two truckloads of KKK stopped them, pulled them out of the car, and beat them. And they, it, Sweet's mother ends up dying from the beating. Now, that didn't really happen in Notasaga. That's fiction. But there were cases like that throughout the South. So the KKK is a big part. And the shocking thing to me is that today, in 2016, the membership of the KKK has increased because they are hearing the same thing they heard when Wallace was governor and ran for president as an independent. People who shouldn't know better are using rhetoric to to fan the fire of racism. Since the 1920s, the KKK has been against immigration of any form. They have supported white supremacy, and they have called themselves Christians, and they have used misguided Christian values to sway people to their platform. So any time today when I hear a political figure or anyone in authority say anything that relates to the philosophy of the KKK, a red light goes off in my head. It's dangerous. I have been there. I've seen it. And I know how dangerous it can be. And people cannot allow their emotions to carry them on this wave of discrimination. Because one thing I learned as a young woman in Alabama, politicians say what people want them to say. If you listen to the rhetoric of a politician and you look at who supports that politician, you can say those supporters are part of the problem. Now, whether they want to admit that or not, you don't support something that you don't agree with. You don't support negative, inflaming, derogatory, discriminating, racist rhetoric in any form against any culture. 
Let's talk about racism at its core for a minute. You, you've witnessed through so many years and close up many of these issues that for many people perhaps are further removed, at least from these historic events that you share in this novel. Where is racism born? What are the conditions that make it ripe for racism to thrive? Because clearly we're all these years later and we're still suffering from many of these same issues. How does it start? Can you help us understand that? I can only tell you what I believe. And I say that I write this in the book. In the novel, when the six um, plaintiffs arrive in Notasaga the first day to desegregate the school, one of the people whom I interviewed for this book was Willie Wyatt, who was a plaintiff in Lee versus Macon. And Willie is the one who gave me the blurb for the back of the book. And beginning on Chapter 8, I began telling Willie's story, a lot of it that he told to me. And in Chapter 8, the superintendent is telling Marty Jane and her husband the story of the desegregation of Notasaga High School. And as Willie told it to me, we could hear the crowd before the bus got into town. It was a cold February day. And the bus pulled into, into town, and we saw all these people on the sidewalk carrying signs, hateful signs. And someone threw an egg at, a bus, at the bus, and several eggs followed. And as the bus went over the arched bridge above the railroad track, Willie looked to his left, and he said, I saw a man in front of the hardware store pointing a shotgun at the bus. And he said, the bus traveled on to the school, and we got to the school, and state troopers were everywhere, and demonstrators were all over the school. And Jim Clark, who was the sheriff of Dallas County, where Selma, Alabama is located, had brought his mounted posse, and he was there. And Vern Merritt, a well-known photojournalist who documented the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, he was from Montgomery, Alabama, he had slipped onto the bus before it left Tuskegee, and he was taking photos. And Jim Clark saw him, and this, this is true. And he pulled Vernon Merritt off the bus, and they almost killed him. So I asked several people I interviewed, what happened to Vernon Merritt? And several, there were different stories about what happened to him. So I made up a story, and I think this is probably what really happened to him. The federal marshals placed him in their car, and they whisked him back to Tuskegee, to safety. And... On the trip back to Tuskegee, I gave a lot of thought. What was Vernon Merritt thinking? What conversation did he and those federal marshals have on the way back to Tuskegee? And Vernon Merritt was a white man. And I had researched Vernon, and I found out that he was from Montgomery, Alabama. He had received his education at the University of Alabama, and he had also received a degree in California. And he came back home to record the Civil Rights Movement. And his parents were liberals, but his mother's father was a racist. So I thought, what would Vernon be talking about to these marshals? So I gave him this long dialogue. And in that dialogue, this is a long way to get to answering your question, I have him explain to these marshals why he thinks men like Wallace and Patterson were so successful in influencing people of Alabama. And he says, poor people have no power. They have no voice. So they ride the coattails of men with power. They already, because of their humble beginnings, have a 
mentality of meekness and being humble about them. So it's easy for powerful men or rich men to take advantage of that weak, meek, I want to please you, boss man, attitude. Yes, a boss man. And you get that mentality of that man, that poor man who has nothing. And the only way he will ever come close to anyone who has anything is to be a part of agreeing, of going along for the ride, of being told what to do because he's used to being told what to do. Basically, any of these people don't think for themselves. It's not that they're not intelligent. It's a culture thing. It's uh, the caste system. It's uh, your place in society. If the boss man tells you to do something, you do it. You know, it takes a strong person to stand up and look the boss man in the eye and say, I ain't going to do it. It's wrong and I'm not going to do it. You know, screw you. And you had that mentality, and I think you still have a lot of that mentality today. People who want to be winners, they want to be on the winning side. And it doesn't matter if the winner is led by Satan. There are some people who are going to hop on that winning wagon. They're not going to think for themselves. They don't have the courage to think for themselves. They don't have the courage to step outside. But, you know, my mother was a strong woman. We were poor, farmers and cotton mill workers. And one of our closest neighbors was an African-American family. And they're in every one of my books, not so much in Troubling the Ashes as they are in Sweet Tea with Lemon and in Seeking the Holy Ghost. But we grew up with that African-American family, and they were poor. But you know what? Because of the color of my skin, I had rights that it took them decades to get. I saw racism and discrimination and hate and anger at its worst with my friends, my African-American friends when I was a child. But where does this come from? I, I hear what you're saying about how it's difficult to resist oppression from any kind, I think is what you're saying. But where does this anger, where does this, what is the source of this? Because all these years later, we're still seeing a lot of this playing out on the streets in America. People afraid to go out, people videotaping their encounters with police because they're afraid of being killed, not just beaten up, not just manhandled, but killed. And on the other side of that, we're seeing police officers who are clearly terrified. They're arming themselves with military-grade weaponry and patrolling the streets in tanks. Yes. Where are all these feelings coming from? What is the source of this racism is what I'm saying. Can we, looking back at all of these years of, of, as a witness that you've had, can you point to instances, circumstances, conversations that give you a clue of a moment when something like this was born or where someone stoked that fire to take advantage of circumstances for their own advantage. Okay, I think it begins at home. I think it comes out of anger. I think it comes out of fear. I think it comes out of being uncomfortable. I think... Uh, part of the fear, and I'll deal with the fear. I think with many people in America today, and even in the 60s and 70s, I think this was a large portion of it, is the fear 
it goes back to what I was saying that Vernon Merritt said and about caste, the caste system. Is the fear that you are, well, first is the knowledge of feeling of superiority, that you think because your skin is white, you're superior to anybody who is, has black skin or brown skin. Now, are many people going to admit that? No, they're not. But I think it comes out of that feeling of superiority, that because I'm white, because my skin is white, and you look at the African Americans who are very light-skinned and pass themselves off as white, and I'm sure there have been Latinos who have passed themselves off as white. Because, why did they do that? Because the white class had privileges that they didn't have. So it comes out of this fear and then, sadly, many, that fear or that anger is instilled at home, instilled in, instilled in children at home. And then you have a politician or a person in control and power who proves to this child that what their parents say is true, and you have a problem. And... I have, growing up, the N-word was common, and I have heard grown men, grown white men, talk to grown black men worse than they would a dog. I have heard grown black men referred to as boys. I have seen grown white men take their hands and slout grown black men. And those grown black men did nothing. I think we've come a long way. You don't see that anymore. First of all, I don't think a black man stand there and take it today. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tolerate it. I don't think anybody whose skin is darker than white would stand there and take it. Not too many people are going to stand there and take it today. They'd, they'd rather go to jail than have somebody treat them that way. And then the issue of the violence among police versus citizens. I don't know the reason that there has been so much police brutality against African-Americans especially, and I'm sure other races. I don't know if it's a lack of training. I don't know if it's because that officer is racist. I don't know if he's Barney Fife and he's trigger happy or a combination of all of the above. Or, but whatever is causing that, police departments have got to work on that. And they have got to connect more with the community. And they have got to convince the community, and I don't care if it's a Hispanic community, a white community, or a black community, or Asian community. They have got to convince that community that they are there to protect them, to serve them. And I don't think because somebody wears blue, they ought to get a pass. Wrong is wrong. It doesn't matter who you are or what uniform you wear. If you're in the military and you make a serious mistake and you do something that's wrong, being in the military should not give you a pass. So there's no excuse for it. Whatever those reasons are for a police officer to kill an unarmed man, there's no excuse for it. But there is no excuse to seek revenge. There's no excuse for someone to say, okay, someone got shot in Baton Rouge or someone got shot in Minnesota, so I'm going to go down to Dallas, Texas, while they're having this really peaceful demonstration of black lives don't matter. They're demonstrating, and the police are marching with them, and it's a peaceful demonstration, and this man comes out of nowhere and kills 
policeman, for whatever reason, that's not right either. One wrong, two wrongs don't make a right. Then you have the police who are killed in Baton Rouge. There are people who are just plain, simply, they're evil. And they are looking for an excuse. Just like many people in religion are flipping the Bible, looking for a verse, take it out of context, and justify their reason to discriminate against homosexuals or transgender people or to discriminate against anyone. That is not right. And that's when the church and its leaders, I don't care if it's Catholic, I don't care if it's Methodist, I don't care if it's Holiness, Pentecostal, Baptist, whatever, those leaders in the church cannot sit by like they did in the 60s and during slavery and encourage this kind of thing. And when you say nothing, many times silence is approval. We cannot remain silent. I don't think... I think things are better. For example, let's just take the issue of of blacks. They couldn't use the bathroom. Now, transgender, there's that big issue about bathrooms with transgender people, and I understand the fear. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. Uh, Blacks couldn't use the white's water fountain. They couldn't go. If they went to the theater, they had to go in the back door and sit in the balcony. Uh, They couldn't go to a restaurant. They couldn't stay in a hotel. They... Were on, they could only ride certain parts of the train. They, If they rode the bus, they had to go to the back of the bus like they did in Montgomery. And Fred Gray, who um, filed the lawsuit, Lee versus Macon, was also the person who filed the lawsuit of the Montgomery bus boycott that concerned Rosa Parks. And Fred Gray also filed the lawsuit Pollard versus the United States government which deals with the syphilis study in Tuskegee, which goes to the fact that even in medicine there's discrimination. During the syphilis study, blacks were discriminated against by the United States government. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the United States gave immunity to all of the Nazi scientists. And they brought those scientists to the United States and hired them. One of those scientists led the syphilis study in Tuskegee, Alabama. That was led by a Nazi scientist. And the United States government allowed him to do whatever he wanted to with those patients who had syphilis. And they knew that a lot of the things they were doing were horrible. And that's why Fred Gray won millions of dollars for those victims. When you say a Nazi scientist, are are you saying someone who was officially affiliated with the Nazi regime? Yes. And this is a fact. I mean, you know, there there are facts on this. They were were brought to the United States because, um, for one thing, Hitler was doing research with the space program, and he was... had, had um, they had advanced quite um, quite some ways. The Nazi um, scientist uh, Van Buren was brought to Huntsville, Alabama, to head the space program in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, let's go back for a minute, if we could, before we get sidetracked with World War II issues. I think <laughs> might be more than we can handle in our short time. Let's go back to those basics again about race. I'm looking at dictionary.com's definition of race. And the number one definition for race as it relates to people is a group of persons related by common descent or heredity. And then it has a definition by anthropology. And it says... This definition is no longer in technical use, but 
but this is a definition it gives. Any of the traditional divisions of humankind, the commonest being the Caucasian, Mongoloid, and Negro, characterized by supposedly distinctive and universal physical characteristics. This is verbatim. Supposedly distinctive and universal characteristics. There are researchers, from what I understand, who have determined that there is no such thing as race, that when you look at people's DNA, you are unable to define distinct races. So how do we, when we look at this from any side of the divide, how can you address this issue of racism? Because there is racism and discrimination people will argue, on both sides of the fence. There's prejudice yeah. and discrimination from all sorts of walks of life. Yeah. How right. do you address this without labeling people? Because isn't that at the heart of the issue, is labeling people? Yes, I think that's right. And I can, I can see why they no longer use that definition. But they may not use that definition, but I think the general public does. Okay, and I'm going to give you an example of of Hispanic Americans who have suffered racial stereotyping. For example, uh, being referred to as the greaser, lazy Mexican, a Latin lover, um, a maid, slum lord, sl uh, slum dwellers, drug addict, gang banger. You know, so you, you do get that. You get that stereotyping of people as part of whether or not to determine if they're racist. And you ask me, how can you determine if someone is racist? I think when you hear people stereotyping, for example, when Donald Trump said that uh, the Mexicans were rapists and murderers, that's an example of what we're talking about. That's stereotyping. That's racist stereotyping. And, you know, it's like crazy. How can you, because... You've got a couple of cases over here, or maybe you've got a hundred cases over here where he's right. But one hundred cases versus millions of people, and you're going to label everybody in that basket? So, yes, I think although they don't give that as a definition anymore, they don't use that as one, I think the general public uses it quite frequently as a way of racial stereotyping. And I think that's one way you can determine if someone's being racist, is how they label someone. You know, it's just like with many African Americans, it's like uh, welfare or unwed mothers or food stamps. And I have seen that on blogs and on Facebook, you know, when the African Americans demonstrated in Atlanta recently and, it, you know, Things popping up like, go home and go get your food stamps tomorrow. That's racist. That's one way you can tell if someone is uh, racially stereotyping someone. That's a form of racism to me. How have you seen this issue change, evolve, if we could use the word evolve, I'm not sure, in how many respects we've evolved, because we're still having so many problems, but of course we have come a long way from these issues that you're describing, this uh, Lee versus Board of Education in 1962, to today. What have you seen over the years that has improved? Okay, all of the tanks that I mentioned about the bathroom, the water fountain, the theaters and restaurants and hotels, those are no longer tanks. One thing, People aren't going to stand for it anymore. The voting right law that was passed by Congress after the Selma Montgomery march stopped a lot of that because, let's face it, just like George Wallace knew after he was shot in Maryland running as an independent and he came back to Alabama and asked the African-Americans to forgive him if they would vote him in as governor, and he said, if you'll do that, I will fill as many offices in Montgomery with African Americans as I can. He knew his math. He knew that blacks then had the right to vote. So you, when you get people who have that right to vote and that right to speak out without fear of 
losing their lives, you want a lot of people are going to stay quiet. They're not going to be as vocal as they would otherwise. But so take those taints off the table. That is an improvement. We've come a long way. We have an African American president. The Selma to Montgomery March 50th anniversary was last year, I think, last year. And here you had President Johnson, who had to nationalize, who had to federalize the National Guard so that the marches could be protected. And 50-something, 50 years later, you have a black president who goes to Selma, Alabama, and sits on that platform at the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery March. We've come a long way. We are still today having a lot of voting restrictive laws enacted. And the reason for that is, in the majority of places where those voter restricting laws is pop are popping up, is where you have minorities of Hispanics and African Americans. It is an attempt to prevent those two races from voting. Voting rights is an important issue in my book, Troubling the Ashes. It is a serious issue today. It, the Supreme Court has set voting rights back tremendously. And it is increasing. In this presidential election, there are more voting restrictive laws for this presidential election than we have seen since the Voting Rights Act was passed by Congress. So we've come a long way, but it's like we take two steps forward and one step back. We have an African-American who's president. Now you have, it's like society is constantly, constantly, um, looking for that other race that they can feel superior to. And I think now one thing, one race that is creating that feeling among white is the Hispanic race. And you're seeing racism among Hispanics toward Hispanics and toward African Americans at a higher level than than before, and it comes again from creating fear. If you can scare people, if you can scare people into believing that somebody is going to take something away from you, if you give them the right to vote, or if you allow them to live in your country, you're going to have to lose some of your rights. If you do that, if you scare people into believing that, you're halfway home. And Wallace did that, and I'm seeing it happen again in today's political arena. And it's appalling. So we've come a long way, but we've got to be smart enough to hear the Wallaces of the world when they speak. We've got to listen. It's not just enough to hear them. We've got to comprehend them. We've got to understand exactly what they're saying between each word. We've got to understand what their true message is. And we, as Americans, have got to stick together. This is about America. This is about Americans. Americans who are melting pot. Americans who are made up of, from every country on this earth. We are a melting pot of people. We are not just the white race. This is not Hitler's Germany. This is America. And we are not a country of just blue-eyed, blonde-haired people. And we need to acknowledge that, to accept it, and to embrace it. Because that's who we are. And we are better and stronger for being a melting pot country. Now, that's my opinion. And we should not allow any one party, any one individual, or one church, or one religion to take that away from us. Because when we take away the rights from one individual, from one group of people, 
from one culture, from one race, we are stripping ourselves of our own rights. We are demeaning ourselves as human beings, and we should not allow that to happen. And I hope that things continue to change for the better. And I hope that people know that they're more than a party, that they are what holds, they are the glue that holds this country together, not the Democrat Party, not the Republican Party, not the Independent Party, not any given church. We the people are the glue that holds this country together. And if we allow that glue to get old and crack and dry, then we're allowing a lot of evil things to slip into our society. We are better than that. We are better people than that. And we need good people from other countries to make us a better country. What would you say, Shirley, if I said that many people consider that there is no such thing as a Hispanic race, that Hispanics are a grouping of people who share a culture and sometimes a language, but that Hispanics can be of any race. Have you heard that before? I haven't, but I think that's true. I think it makes sense. And, and again, you know, when we, when we use terms like um, African-American or Anglo-Saxon or white, in a way we are labeling people but in, in, and identifying. But then how else could I talk about racism if I didn't use, you know, break it down into what we call races, in which races really is a group of people. You're right. A race is a group of people. It's a culture. And um, the important thing here, though, is they are people. They're all people. It doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. They are people. They are part of the human race. They're God's children. We are one. There are more things that make us the same than make us different. Our blood is still red. Our hearts beat in the same way. We love in the same way. There is more that makes us the same than makes us different. And we need, that needs to be our focus. What are the takeaways from these many years of firsthand experience to some of these events that you have come away with, some of which you shared in your books? What would you say are the takeaways? If you remove these labels, what is left? What lessons have you learned that you share with our, with our listeners? What's left is that you... Realize that you have a lot more in common than you thought. What's left is you feel the same way your neighbor feels, whether your neighbor is next door or the country next door. We have hopes and dreams and inspirations. And for the most part, people are good. We want to stomp out evil. We want to fight evil. We want the good guy to win. We want to be better parents. We want to be better sisters and brothers. We want to be better leaders. So I've not given up. Oh, I'm not dismal at all. Because there are some, there are so many positive things. And I can tell you, based on history, there are ways to get rid of unfair voting restrictive laws. There are ways to get rid of discrimination. There are ways to get rid of racism. 
And God seems to always send the right person at the right time. And I can remember my children saying to me, this is back to Germany, why did the world wait so long to do anything about Hitler? And I don't know the answer to that, but I thought about it, and finally one day I said to them, the only, the only answer that I can give you is when Hitler killed a hundred Jews, nobody paid attention. When he killed a thousand Jews, nobody paid attention. When he killed two million Jews, suddenly it was like throwing cold water in the faces of other countries. Hey, it's wake-up time. This is serious. It's getting out of hand. Do something. Sometimes it takes terrible things to happen before good can come out of it. Now, that is certainly not saying let's let bad go rampant crazy in the hopes that good will eventually evolve. But that tragedy in Germany was so horrendous that we will never forget it. The issue of slavery in America was so horrendous that we will never forget it. And there are going to be issues concerning immigrants that are going to force American people to rethink their behavior. What are the practical applications in terms of businesses that you can see from all of these experiences that you shared in the book and that you've been talking about with us today? We have listeners here who are business owners, business managers, and are looking at finding ways to focus on the bottom line while being loyal to the law, the letter of the law, and being good citizens, being ethical citizens. What are the practical applications of these issues? How can they address them? I think um, just being an educator and knowing how I address certain issues in the classroom, you've got to be open about it. You've got to discuss it. If that means having seminars or having workshops or making sure that you, as a business owner, that you are not guilty of discrimination, that you are not guilty of um, not of ignoring a leader who is leading in the wrong direction, that you are a good, strong leader for your company and for your workers, and that you believe in them and that you treat them fairly and equally. And that's one thing in the classroom that I always did. I was always, I was always fair, always just. Everybody got treated the same. And if there was an exception, I told my class, this is the reason I'm doing this with this individual. And I want that, I want to make this clear to you. I want you to understand why I am stepping outside of one of my own rules and violating one of my, breaking one of my own rules. I want you to understand. So I think that as owners of business, businesses, they have so much, they hold so much in the palm of their hands. They have, they are this person's bread and butter. They are touching the lives, not just of those who work for them, but they are touching the lives of those people's families. And they have got to be fair and they've got to be just. They've got to walk on the side of justice and equality. And they've got to make sure that their business is a respectable, just business that honors people as human beings and values them as human beings 
and values their worth, even if it's the janitor up to the CEO. In my novel, Mose, the janitor of the school, is a very important character. He sort of held that place together. He was there before it was integrated. He was there after uh, it was integrated. He was sort of the glue there. He was important. He was, he was as important as any teacher, as any principal at that school. Recognize the worth and the value of your employee. Honor that and treat everybody fairly. Whether it comes to wages, promotions, don't play politics. That would be my advice. What do you see coming forward as you look at your crystal ball, you glance back at the past, you glance at what's going on today, and what do you see? You think things are going to continue changing? I think they will continue to change. Now, does that mean there won't be bumps in the road? Does that mean we won't go back two steps occasionally? That'll happen. We will. But if we can look back 50 years from now and say we've come a long way, baby, in regard to the rights of women, African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, if we can do that, and we can say it's part, it may be part of the human spirit to be racist and to discriminate, but we're working on it. And I, I want to believe that my country, my America, will work on it. I believe that. I believe they will. I've seen them work on it. Sometimes it took the federal government making them work on it. But that's okay. Big Daddy has to slap you to make you straighten up. Let Big Daddy slap you and make you straighten up. What tips would you share with our listeners in parting that they can take with them to their businesses, to their homes, to address this issue? Respect people. Honor. Honor them as human beings. Think about them Try to think about them the way Jesus Christ, the way God would think about them. Be forgiving. Embrace, embrace different cultures. Embrace different ideas. You know, I really think that every high school in America should require a debate, a debating course for its students. I was in the debating club in high school for two years. And before we would debate another school, I remember our sponsor, we would sit in our group and we would discuss the issue, let's say capital punishment. And we would have this long discussion, and he would let us talk, and he would ask some questions. And it dawned on me after a while that what he was doing was if the topic was going to be capital punishment, and, for example, I was against it, he made me take the other side. The person who was for it, he made them take the opposite side. And, of course, we had to do research. We had to have reliable sources. It couldn't just be Uncle John's opinion. And we came back prepared with our evidence. And you know what? That made me do a lot of thinking outside the box. That was one of the best things that ever happened to me as a young person. Because that sponsor, Mr. Avery, forced us to look at everything before we made a decision. And you know what? I changed my mind about a lot of topics based on those debates, based on the research that I gathered. I just think it helps your thinking skills. And it doesn't hurt to do a little thinking, to, a little, to maybe walk in somebody else's shoes. Thank you, Shirley, for joining us from West Point, Georgia. I appreciate it. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Shirley Aaron, who is author of Troubling the Ashes, who discussed racism today. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at Hispanic. 
mpr.com.